So welcome everybody to the first edition of the Juxtacast. This is a new radio show that we're putting out to talk about all things Juxt with an emphasis on the closure programming language and a lot of other stuff along the way. So first of all, we're going to introduce who's here. We've got Alex Davis. Alex, you want to say hello? Hello. Hello. We've got uh, Lucio. Hello, everyone. And John Pither. John, you're, you're frowning. Don't want to talk about this. Uh, no, no idea. I was just looking at the uh, display of the podcast that we've got going on. Oh, yeah. All the different levels. It's, no, it's quite exciting. It's our first podcast. Yeah, we've invested in a, a bit of tech. We had a trial run last week, and uh, we'll see how this goes. You should be able to get the video on YouTube as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, so, uh, um, you know, we're going to start with an origin story. So it's a bit like one of those Marvel films where we're going to go right back to mm. the start, I guess, and do that for the various people that we have here. So why don't we go back further than that? So what was Malcolm looking like when he was 21 and graduated from university? And what did he do at that point? I had shoulder length hair when I left university. <laughs> but there's very few uh, Facebook posts about that because Facebook wasn't invented then. Um, and I, I, well, I left university and I, I got very, very lucky because I joined a company called Capgemini. Um, which was at the time called Hoskins. And I remember getting, uh, I was very, very lazy at university or very, very busy. And I didn't have any jobs to go to and I didn't do the careers thing and I didn't do the thing of applying for internships. And so when my finals were over or just before they were over, I, I kind of had this, it dawned on me that I hadn't done any thinking of the what I was going to do for my career. So I went to the careers office and there was one job that hadn't been filled. I mean, there was everything else had closed. So I filled out my application form and got it on the post. And I remember posting the envelope at five o'clock, one minute to five, and just getting the postman. <laughs> and uh, I got an interview and I got a job. And it was good to work for a consulting company. I can it was mm. the, because you got to get a lot of experience at different things. And I worked for this document image processing and workflow department. So I got to play on really big screens and my first job, I remember it being a bit of a shock because I left Warwick University having worked on sun microstations mm -hmm. and um, on green screens and learning, you know, Emacs and VI. And I kind of, I left that and we went to the office and it was these beige boxes that weren't even networked and running DOS. And it was quite a shock, which I still haven't got over. But network, I remember putting network cards into the PCs and kind of trying to debug all these TCP IP drivers and, and things. It was really, really tough. And plugging in, getting down and, you know, putting in the coax cable between the PCs and it, everything breaking all the time and, and it not working. And it was really, really difficult, but you learned a lot. And I learned all about networking and about the whole stack because mm. you kind of, you have to debug it. Yeah, so that was a long way back. John, what were you doing? Well, I got out of university. I graduated in Birmingham and I'm, I'm from the Midlands, or as you would call it, the North, I'm in the UK. Uh, so tried to get a job, but it was around the dot-com crash. Uh, so I couldn't really get a job. I had a good T1. So I moved down to London, um, pretty much been there ever since. Uh, my first job was a bit different. It was for a small software house that had one big client, uh, which was a property website. And then it wanted to invest some money to build a CMS. Like at that time, everyone was building a CMS. It was the new funky thing. If you weren't building a CMS, then what were you doing? So uh, these guys wanted to build a Java CMS and sell it. And I just had a great two years, just sat next to this 
absolute warrior in terms of you know coding and this guy was like really strict with me he he was very ruthless and we used open source so he got me into open symphony and struts and web work and all that sort of stuff so i had two years of a baptism of fire um it did get me thinking actually it's on a philosophical sort of rambling actually i've been thinking recently about um you know if you work for a consultancy you have that ability to go across lots of different projects and that is great so we become really good at consulting and saying well i think this particular library is is good or this approach is good i've seen this on this project but what i sometimes uh get concerned about is do when when you flick across these different projects do we have that real length that you need to go deep into a project and really become like a master of the domain and the code base and i can't i haven't really been able to articulate this well but it feels to me that only when you just go that deep, when you don't know which way is up with the code base almost, when you just spend hours with it and it's soaking into you, the domain, the bottom-up programming where the code is reaching out to the business domain and sort of inventing itself and what the rules are and you can see that business domain so clearly in the code. It's like only at that point do you really truly get things like how to use tests and refactoring and how to make the code like pure and simple in the business domain where things are changing so much. And um, I guess it's a point to you, Mark, because you said your first job was in consulting and like, did you find that you did need a time to settle down and just spend longer and immerse yourself in a project without having that consulting pressure to move across different projects and you only ever get to go sort of knee deep. Sometimes you need to go all the way down and it's like a pot of jucks. It's something that I'm wanting to be aware of as a consultancy and how do we offer that to people to get that experience? Yeah, I think many of my consulting experiences have been on quite long projects and, and a lot of I've been a developer on, on project teams for sometimes up to a year, and that I think that was very educational at the beginning. So I did start off programming, mostly in Unix and C to start with, but um, then I discovered Java, but that was later on. Um, and in fact, when I arrived my first day of work, they, were, um, they had just bought their first Unix machine. It was a, a Sun workstation. And they were all, I remember when it arrived, and they were all gathering around it, treating it like it was some sort of museum piece. And uh, I said, oh, Sun Microsoft workstation, I, I know how to turn this on. So I turned it on and started booting it up and playing around with it. And they looked at me like I was some kind of god. <laughs> so from that day on, I became the Unix systems administrator. I got promoted on my first day. Yeah, I moved to the management side and stopped being technical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So Lucio, how did you, um, what, what got you into? I, I mean, I was just curious in the beginning, to be honest, because I started from a uh, business administration bachelor's degree, so I didn't have to do anything at all with programming. And I used to take some elective courses, and, and then I was, yeah, let's try computer science. I've been always, you know, interested in the field. And I mean, it wasn't actually computer science because it was about uh, web design. So basically building static HTML, CSS, and a bit of JavaScript, just that web pages like that. And so I took the first class and I really loved it. Then I took the second course, which was a bit deeper. And then after that, um, I mean, I couldn't change because it was late during my, uh, my program. So I graduated and then it was between finance and computer science. So I tried to, I tried first finance because it was more relevant with my, um, with my degree. And I did six months of internship at this consulting company and I didn't like it because of the same reason, because it wasn't very technical. And I really felt that need to really like build stuff and actually do concrete things uh, rather than, you know, 
uh, spend time more on the management side. And so then I was like, okay, this is not my field. So I searched for uh, some online courses or uh, just uh, programs uh, to learn computer science in like, I was trying to, of course, find the fast way to learn as much as possible because I'd already spent four years on my bachelor's degree. And so I found this uh, program at UCL. It was meant for people without a computer science background, but with, you know, some basic skills. And so that was perfect for me. So I applied, I got in and that was a one year program, pretty intense. And in the beginning, I was a bit scared because, you know, one thing is to to say, yeah, I love programming. But then when you have to do it every single day, then maybe you may realize that it's not really what you want to do. And so in the beginning, I was scared that it wasn't the right choice again. But then I soon realized that, I mean, I fell in love with it immediately. And then, yeah, I really wanted to uh, to get a job before finishing the dissertation. And so, yeah, I applied during the summer. I met Alex. <laughs> He's regretted it ever since. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my story. What do you guys think about, like, do you think it's still a good thing to get a computer degree these days? Because you, you do see people, just practitioners that experiment and people can get to a certain level without having to go to university. And, of course, university is expensive and what's the view? You know what I think? I If I um, could go back, I don't think I would start a bachelor's in computer science because I think that the business degree really helped me. Just, you know, it shaped my mind like to understand like how marketing works and just in general how to like run a business and even like, you know, learning finance. I think it's very important. And actually I have some friends who did the same. They studied business or other fields and then they focused on computer science. They either did boot camps or, uh, you know, master's programs like mine. And now they're seniors and they're working and they're successfully developing their careers in computer science and so. I think if you know if you can diversify more, that's better. That's a good point because we've got people that do philosophy, for instance, um, as studies at university, and I think those degrees that actually teach you how to think, like how to, when you're extrapolating a concept from a code base, they can identify what that concept is or rationale about the abstractions. I think that's really powerful, actually. Yeah. And the coding bit, like how computers work and that sort of stuff, like how to use a prompt, you know, you can pick that up afterwards. Yeah. So, if, yeah, I mean, if I could go back, it's I, I might consider the, the humanities. Hmm. But then there is that tension now because it's so expensive to go and get a degree. You probably want to ensure that you can make money out of it afterwards. So, right. it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not an easy one. When when I did my computer science degree, it was standard actually for every engineering course to teach one module of philosophy. I did a year in, in a university in Canada and they have like this credit system where each course has a certain number of credits and you needed a number of credits to graduate from. But those credits have to be split between different fields. So you can't just get all computer science credits. You have to get some humanities, and some of those humanities have to be like a second language, for instance. But, but I think coming, coming back to your point, there's, there's motivation plays like a huge part in it. And although now I kind of think the amount I learned in university was far less than I learned in my first three months on the job, but if I actually went back in time could I have skipped out on university, just spent three months learning and then got a job? Probably wouldn't have happened like that because even if you haven't learned anything during your degree, you can get a, a job and then you can start learning things. I think that's where the, a large part of the value of having a degree comes from nowadays is just the piece of paper. Yeah, but when you say that you can learn everything in three months, I agree, but you can learn a lot during your degree if you're committed and if you really like it. 
because for example during my masters i learned a lot because i really liked it and i was on it every day while other people we got to the end and they had a little bit more skills than the beginning like they could write hello world in java you know some classes some methods that's it yeah and i was impressed because i was like wow like you spent so much money this is one year intense program and you didn't even try to learn as much as you can so but there's so many people like that that i saw who just wanted to party and go to the beach and didn't learn anything well maybe they are learning something <laughs> <laughs> or maybe their parents think that yeah. <laughs> i think going to university or just having um that life experience you know you you know is is useful for just having to sort of fend for yourself but you learn a lot of of stuff just by being away from home and, and having to that's true do those yeah. sort of things and um, but I, I've been really impressed by inside Juxt and working with um, people of different, you know, who have come from different experiences. I remember at university spending a whole term talking about, you know, learning about compiler design and automata and formal languages and all those kind of state machine stuff, writing lexical analyzers and tokenizers and, you know, grammar preprocessors, lex and yak and all that kind of stuff, context-free grammars and left recursion and refactoring of it just just ton of theory and then i've worked with people who haven't had any theory of compiler design and they've been hit with a problem a requirement of having to write some dsl and parse it and they go to the web and they find a library and they they read a blog or a paper or stack overflow um, and they get a solution going and they they make do it's a bit like when your internet goes down at home and your kids figure out how to reset the router they've got no idea what the seven layer iso stack of <laughs> but they uh, they figure it out you know the brain is a very very adaptable thing and it can cope with this kind of confusion and and i think you can see that as we call it stack overflow programming where people just grasp just what they need in order to get over the line and i've seen that being a very very effective way of, mm. of delivering solutions i mean there is that's caveated by sometimes you can you can end up with more and more layers of complexity because everybody doesn't really understand what's going on and there is that danger but um it's remarkable to see what people can achieve without having a formal education mm. and on going back and thinking how useful has my i suppose quote unquote formal education been i, I took a year out to write a computer game with with a couple of friends at, at school and and I, that was ultimately you know failed but then i went to university for three years um didn't do you know did a lot of programming at university but it was mostly kind of struggling with maths and the formal stuff and then left university and went back to programming and i don't really know how much i you know how much i would have um whether my programming was that much better or, or worse i mean it certainly improved it might have improved if i had three years in a in a job yeah but i'd challenge that to a degree i mean you know there's a worry that if you know if we've got these stack overflow engineers and people who just want to hack stuff it's like do they really do that deep thinking Maybe that is a strength of university, actually. It's kind of away from the keyboard and just hacking and programming the sort of surface stuff. It's an opportunity to actually think about, you know, where did databases come from? Like, what are the primitives there? Where did the internet come from? What are the primitives of networking? And it's a, it's a, good, a good chance to get away from that frenetic keyboard activity and to actually think about the fundamentals of the trade. There was this thing, is that I think it's changed now, but it used to be that techies and, you know, they were geeks. They were sort of like an outcast. They were nerds. Whereas now I think it's you know it's quite a, it's it's more of a 
kind of respected noble mm. trade and people respect that profession more. Mm. But I think it's a bit of a hangover, do you think, from perhaps the 90s or the 80s where it was seen as a bit esoteric, a bit weird to be into technology? There's a phrase in English, or in, in the UK certainly, about blue-collar work and white-collar workers and blue-collar workers. And blue-collar workers historically were ones who wore blue shirts and they were doing the more menial tasks. Mm. And the, the sense that coding is a menial task, even the word coding is actually just translating other people's requirements and tapping them into a kind of punch card, mm. you know, coding things up. But I think it's just generally um, in the UK, a kind of it might be a kind of hangover from the class system or something, whereas there is a, um, a, a bit of a anti-academic, anti-intellectual kind of suspicion that people have. And um, people don't trust you if you know stuff. And um, mm. they want some way of kind of keeping you in your corner, keeping you in your box. The IT team are very much down on the kind of the ground floor, the un, you know, underground. And um, there's a suspicion of all those ones and zeros. And, uh, you, know, you know, a suspicion of magic. You know, we used to burn witches. You know, that, that feeling of un, the unknown being a, a, something that you're really afraid of. And um, software engineers are the new witches. So I used to live in Japan. So I have experience with their their culture, which is quite different to ours. In that, if you're that sort of you know geeky type in school, in England that's seen as you know a bad thing, and kids are bullied all the time for being too smart or just sitting in the corner and learning. Like how how dare you try and learn? This is a school. Whereas Japan, it's kind of the opposite, and the the cool kids in the class will be the ones who have built up some skill. However, for some reason, that doesn't apply to software, so it's still not a cool thing to do. And I think that might be because of that whole unknown factor. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a bit like that in Italy as well. Yeah, besides the main cities where you can actually find some, you know, proper developers and some teams, and they care about it and they're well paid. Generally, it's like, oh, yeah, so, oh, you're a programmer. Almost like if they're saying you're a magician. <laughs> yeah, that kind of feeling. So, Alex, are you going to introduce this next section? Uh, sure, yeah. Well, I am, as this is our first podcast, thought it would be good to do the origin of Juxt. Why is Juxt a company? What does it do? That sort of thing. You were, you were one of the founding members, so you're probably hmm. as good a person as any to, to tell this story. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll explain why I kind of got into Juxt or, you know, um, started it with John. I mean, I, I um, really always wanted to start a company that was, you know, a simple company and it would kind of um, stand against some of the incredible complexity. We were talking about, you know, Stack Overflow programming and layers and layers and layers. And, you know, I, I found that, you know, I talked about the shock of discovering the whole Windows and PC environment and, and kind of bloatware and just really, really kind of fat IT and discovering that it was really very much against the, the joy that I learned when I was programming as a teenager on kind of 8-bit, 16-bit microcomputers where everything was very, very pure and very lean. And my first computer had 1K. I plugged it in and it was just a flashing cursor on the TV. And it was, you know, there was no bloat at all. And I, um, and so that's how I discovered programming and I fell in love with it. And then when I went into ind industry, everything just became fat and bloated. And, and I wanted to get away from that and go back to the purity. And I kind of always wanted to go back to a simpler way of doing things. Um, I was very much involved in, you know, Java and I, what attracted to me to Java was 
very much it kind of reminded me of Emacs and Lisp because it, it you know it was a machine it was JVM that would carry on working whereas with C and C++ that I'd probably been programming before you would make a bug and everything would die and collapse and you'd you know be writing dead code that you would run and it would collapse again and crash and then you would um, but J the JVM was something really quite different it was something more akin to a sort of a Lisp and then um, going through the whole J2E um, experience where um, it just looked like that thing that I loved about Java was seven packages was just getting more and more bloated and fatter and fatter and fatter until it was just this is a kind of impossible huge thing and and that in itself was just a, a tiny grain of sand inside the, the huge great big edifice of enterprise IT which is kind of incredibly confusing incredibly bloated and um, then got into closure because it was a, I, I kind of got into scheme and going down back into the kind of really really small programming and I kind of fell in love with program again and um, yeah I got to know John through the London Clojurians group and he was talking about um, waste and uh, I'm sure he'll, he'll talk about that but it really echoed with me and I kind of I really kind of latched on to John's ideas about you know he was sort of articulating what I felt um, and I think I knew about John. I bumped into him at a London Clojurians, and I said, like, John, I have to give you my business card. Let's go and meet for, uh, let's just, you know, start meeting for lunch. Because I had it in the back of my mind. It would be quite nice to start a company. But, uh, you know, I didn't know John. I didn't know whether, you know, he'd want to do that. Um, so I thought, well, let's just talk about it, and we'll see what happens. So I invited John to, to meet up. I used to walk over to John. We, we worked about 10 minutes away. And we we went for a few lunches and that sort of gradually we evolved the idea that we both wanted to to do this as a company um, and it was partly partly also a time when you know I was kind of having to decide to you know I I, I was writing closure for about three years at uh, at a bank and uh, I was faced with the prospect of having to maybe go back to Java and I wasn't really relishing that so I was kind of thinking half thinking about um, you know, leaving just so I could carry on writing closure. So John and I had a few lunches. Um, I can't remember how many times we uh, we actually met John. Yeah, I don't know. We used to go to the Google campus, and uh, we started out uh, with org mode and to jot down our values. And first, you had to show me what org mode was and how to use it. So that was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, sort of similar story really. Uh, I've got experience of working in consultancies and. Uh, the sort of rage or the injustice that I always felt was that the technologists aren't always included in conversations or they're consulted afterwards and you know they're not the the go-to group of people that you should really talk to if you want to get the right information so I felt that sort of burning desire to one day see it done well and uh, ultimately to do that you have to run your own company or join a company that shares those values so I had that want um, and then I started to work in the investment banking domain and just the sheer amount of waste that you see in the enterprise, like different teams mucking about with object definitions. Let's add a field so you can consume the field. Oh, but mine's mandatory and yours isn't optional. Oh, let's, let's have this conversation and talk about when we release. And those conversations have gone for ages. So I, I found Clojure. Um, Hawkan Rayberg, a colleague, uh, in, introduced me to it. And we started to use Clojure and it just felt like a lot of the accidental complexity just went away so so now I had this other sort of burning injustice in the world which is like there's a better way to write software and uh, that's the way that 
I really want to do it. So um, I got into um, Closure, uh, went to a few talks. There's one by Malcolm on RDF uh, and been used at a different bank. I started to blog. Um, I started to create a small niche for myself uh, called Closure at a Bank. But then some imposter called Malcolm Sparks created a blog called Closure in a Bank. And uh, I'm not entirely sure which one uh, got there first out of both of us. But we were definitely in the same sort of circle and you were on my radar and I was possibly on yours. And yes, I sort of chanced it and went to a dojo in London, I think at ThoughtWorks, and uh, we met. Started going out for lunch, uh, started to jot down, you know, if we were to have some sort of professional service offering, what would the proposition be, what would the values be? And I think we got more and more excited. And uh, it's one of those things, like I, you know, wish that I could say, yes, it was all pre-planned and we did a brilliant job of execution, but... We both developed this over a prolonged period. We had the idea and then the first client came and it's a bit fortuitous or we took advantage of the situations as they unfolded. Um, but yeah, it's um, in some ways it's an intimidating question. It's like, how did you start Jux? Like, what was the plan? What was the strategy? Because we, we evolved it. Mm. But really. when you went to lunch, did you see each other as friends or uh, potential partners or like what was the... Yeah. Well, we were dating. <laughs> I guess we were open to a long-term relationship. And, you know, yeah. But I think we started with no strings attached in, okay. and, uh, before things got serious. Yeah, merge our assets and do some open source work and have some fun and go to conferences and see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things about you just thinking about stuff and talking before you commit. And, you know, that just makes so much sense that you... you you don't really have to, you know, act on the first impulse. Um, I remember walking down, I think it was one of the, the streets in the East End, and, mm. and I was saying to you, John, if we're going to start a company, I think I know what we're going to call it. And he said, well, what's that? And I said, Simplect. <laughs> and you were very polite. He said, oh, okay, I'm not, sh <laughs> not quite sure about that. Uh, I think we should call it Juxt. And then I thought, mm -hmm. yeah, I think you're right. Actually, the reason for that was, as, as you were saying about this Simplect thing, I had my... Um, screen open and there was some code and the curse was actually on the word Jux. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So I was like, that's a great idea. Uh, <laughs> what else can I call it? Yeah. Spoon, cup. Yeah. Uh, oh, look, Jux. Yeah, they would have all been better than Simplex, actually, <laughs> in fairness. Jux being a function enclosure, just for yeah. Any, yeah. anyone who doesn't know that. Yeah. I've got no idea what code it was that was on the laptop at that point in time. <laughs> so, so what would you say the values were like when you when you wrote down the values what are the values of jux well i think we had this thing about waste i bought in at one point to the whole lean movement and lean is about seven different forms of waste it's like transport mm. uh, having to transport inventory yeah. around and um you know you can do this on a software project it's quite fascinating actually if you if you sort of take the requirement and you map out a value stream map. So you draw a big flow diagram of how the requirement makes it all the way through from the point of view coding it, to checking it in, to the build artifact being built, to it being tested, and then it being shipped to production. And you get this all out on paper. That's your value stream map. And it's quite interesting to, to sort of color the different areas of where the waste areas are. So in the old days, you might have like a really expensive QA team, or you, know, you might have a cumbersome continuous build environment, and those are areas of waste. And uh, I became quite impassioned by this notion that there's just lots of waste out there. And it's a really good way of looking at software projects mm. and working out where the bottlenecks are and what can frustrate people. Um, and we saw waste in just 
wrong technologies mm. or technologies that were very bloated, the enterprise tech, you know, all the big sort of spring and hibernates and mm. mavens and release cycles and just lots of rubbish that when you start to just go down a level, when you deal with functions and just data in and data out and immutability, it's just so simple. And you wonder, do we, you know, is this waste out there justifying itself? So one of the the first values that we brought to the table, I think, was was waste. And I don't know if we articulated it, but development-led teams or developers, you, you know, sort of leading the way is also a value. I don't know if we gave that a name or it's got a name. Yeah, so that was good. Uh, um, it's our first ever podcast, the inaugural um, podcast. And it was good to talk about origin stories. Uh, we talked about the education system. We talked about our first jobs. And we talked about the criticality of, of the trade and uh, you know the model of surgeons and developers really being respected and at the forefront. So uh, I just want to say tune in again for the next Juxcast. And thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone in this room. And yeah, have a good night, everyone. Hmm. Take it easy. Ciao. Recording. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wrap it up and just do like almost do like the retrospective and say so we you know we talked about this and that and we had a good time. Yeah. So that, yeah. yeah. Okay. One, two, three. You just listened to the first. Sentence. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, go for it. You just listened to the first juxtacast with Alex Davis and John Pither. The juxtacast. Get your guitar out.